Thank you. All right, we're in John chapter 11, but we're just going to briefly uh, give you a little recap of where we are. Um, it's roughly the middle of the Gospel of John, and yet in Jesus's public ministry, we're at the very tail end. In a few months, he'll go to the cross. Um, just a handful, three or four months, and the cross will occur. What's been occurring is he's been teaching and healing and what have you. John 10 was all about him being the good shepherd who holds his sheep in his in hand, and they are eternally secure as a result. It's a beautiful passage and recalls Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want very much a parallel passage to that. It's interesting and ironic that he holds the sheep in his hand and no one can grab his sheep out of his hand and his father's hand. And ironically, his enemies at the end of the chapter who hate him and don't believe want to seize him. They want to grab him and the father prevents that from happening. His protection is with Jesus the entire time until the appropriate time of his arrest. Till then, it's not his time or his hours, old translations have, so he can't be harmed or hurt. That's going to come up tonight a little bit. Um, what we just saw in chapter 10 was the real last public discourse or speech that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John. You say, well, it's only half over. What's the rest of the time? Most of the rest of the time is that last week of his life, of chapter 12 forward, especially the the week of, passion, of his passion, the cross, the trials, but especially he's teaching, he's still speaking, but he's teaching for several chapters, just his apostles. And we get to eavesdrop. So it's, there's a lot in those chapters to come. Um, we already talked about that. So pick it up at the end of verse uh, chapter 10. I'm sorry. Yeah. Chapter 10, verse 40. Um, just to give you the, a little more background. Um, then Jordan, uh, after he is, uh, he tries to seize him in verse 39, he escaped their grasp. That's God protecting him. Verse 40, he went back again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And that's where he stayed. And many came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. John is contrasting the unbelief of the Jews it's symbolic, and it's not an accident that he's gone across the Jordan to the, what's called the Transjordan area, where the Pharisees have no jurisdiction. He is, in a sense, outside the camp of Israel now. Israel has formally rejected him via the religious leaders, so he goes across the Jordan to where John had been, where a lot of John's followers are there. They accept his word. They believe in him although the official Jews do not. Um, notice that he says, though John never performed a miraculous sign, that's important to note. John had a huge following, didn't do it with miracles, never performed a miracle, just preached right from the Holy Spirit speaking through him uh, brutally sometimes, right? And truthfully, and people came to get baptized. Um, Though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. What's implied in that verse is John never performed a sign. Why do they mention that? Because Jesus goes there and must be performing miracle after miracle. 
to those who receive the light that they're given, more light is given. That's why he's able to do miracles there. He's not able to do miracles very much in Capernaum and other places, which are his hometown or Nazareth, where people don't believe in him that much. So in that place, many believed in Jesus. Huge contrast. Now we come to chapter um, 11, and I have a rather lengthy introduction, but I have to do it to give you the, a little bit of background. Um, chapter 11 is the story of Lazarus. Most everybody knows about Lazarus. Lazarus, he dies and he rises from the dead. He's a friend, close friend of Jesus, whom Jesus loved. Well, a lot of people have wondered, Matthew, Mark, Luke, don't mention Lazarus rising from the dead at all right? Which has led some liberal scholars to say it probably didn't happen. John just kind of made it up and yeah, right. Well, so what's going on here? There are two theories of why it's not in the synoptics. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke gospels. They kind of parallel one another to some extent, at least. Why isn't Lazarus being raised from the dead, which is a huge miracle in there, okay? Theory number one, Lazarus was alive then when Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their Gospels and didn't want Lazarus to end up being venerated or who knows, even worshipped. People bugging him about, what did you see for those four days you were dead? We want to know, and getting their eyes off Jesus. So for that reason, because he's alive, when they write, they don't include it. John writes way later his gospel. Lazarus is surely dead by then, and he's able to tell the story. That's theory number one, okay? And there might be some truth to that. There's no way to know for sure. Remember that the gospels are not exhaustive. By that, I mean they don't tell every single story of every single day and everything he said and every miracle. The Bible would be 100 miles thick, right, with every story. John even says that at the end of his gospel. So they're not exhaustive. Most of the gospel writers take a sampling of a couple of healings and a couple of miracles with nature, walking on water, calming storms, a couple of demon-possessed people, and give you an overview of this is what kind of person Jesus was and what he did. But I think there's a better explanation or an additional explanation for why Lazarus is not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's an interesting thing. Okay, Peter, Apostle Peter, head of the apostles, right? The spokesman. Peter is missing in the Gospel of John between chapter 6, verse 68, all the way to chapter 13, verse 6 say, hmm, okay, what does that mean? Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, all the way to 26, no Peter. Mark chapter 10, verse 27 to chapter 11, verse 21, no Peter. Mark is the gospel that Peter, most scholars think, dictated. Peter spoke it, Mark wrote it down. Here's what I remember. Then he did this, then he did that. In Luke, Peter is missing from Luke 18, 28, all the way to chapter 22, verse 8. What's your point, Joe? A lot of scholars think Peter, who was married and had a family, took a little time off. And when all of Mar Jesus's miracles in the Gospel of John are in Jerusalem, and it's thought that Peter did not accompany the rest of the apostles for that time, 
So he records no miracles in Jerusalem uh, in, in the synoptics, very, very few. Peter himself doesn't record any. Why, doesn't, why isn't Lazarus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Because Peter is the source for Mark, which starts the ball rolling, and Peter didn't see it. He surely heard about it, the healing of uh, the raising of Lazarus, but he didn't write about it. Okay, there's another thing. When we get into 11, chapter 11, I'll show you that the spokesman for the apostles is, get ready for it, Thomas of all people. No Peter. Kind of interesting. Why didn't the other three gospels, why didn't Peter mention Lazarus? Because he didn't see it, didn't remember it. John remembers it. You can see the details you're going to see in this story. It's very much an eyewitness type of account. Um, so the raising of Lazarus is a big deal because he's dead for four days. The Jews believe that when a person, and this is not true, but they believed, rabbis had even taught, that when a person dies, the spirit hangs around the soul, the immaterial part of the person, hangs around the body for three days. And then the fourth day, there's no hope of resuscitation or anything. The spirit splits. That's why there's four days here to show there's no way Lazarus was kind of still alive and kind of thing. Um, I want to show you later, and I should warn you that this is such a great story. It's almost like a great joke that you know you're going to tell and go, you know what? We're out of time and we didn't get to the punchline today. We probably won't get to the raising of Lazarus today because the teacher's kind of a babbler and it's, there's a lot of information here, but we're going to at least set up the story. We'll see how far we get. Depends on how many hard questions you people ask that are here. Anyway, um, yeah, um, the synoptics also don't have the blind man or the lame man that we just saw that were healed in John chapter nine, chapter eight um, in the, uh, that are in the gospel of John because it happens in Jerusalem it's thought Peter wasn't with the other apostles then, for whatever reason, Fam family stuff, who knows. The raising of Lazarus is a big deal, I got to say, on several different layers. I'll try to remember to show you all of them. It's more than just the raising of a dead man. There's an aspect where it involves you and I. There's an aspect where it's just, it involves all of humanity. The great enemy of humanity is death much more so than sickness or anything. And death is a result of sin. So we're dealing with Christ showing that he and he alone can conquer, by the way, easily with spoken word, death, which has implications for all of us. Um, we already talked about that. Last thing, love, death, and the glory of God. You say, what do those have to do with each other? This story ties all three together, love, death, and the glory of God. If you're awake, say amen. amen. Okay, that's pretty good. Chapter 11, verse 1. Let's dive in and see what we can find. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, Mary and Martha are mentioned in the synoptics, okay? Other incidents, not this incident with Lazarus. So this guy is sick. We're going to find out that it's not a cold or, you know, the flu. He's really sick. Um, Lazarus of Bethany. There's two Bethanies. This is the one that's only two miles or a little less from Jerusalem. 
That's important because the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, at the end of chapter 10, they tried to seize him to kill him. And he gets away, right? So to go back to Jerusalem in the disciples' minds is great danger. There's wanted posters with Jesus's name on if you're into Westerns like I used to be. So he's sick and he's got a sister named Mary and a sister named Martha. Um, that's the setup verse in verse one. We'll talk more about each character because they're pretty different. Um, Jesus and the disciples stay at Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house often. Okay. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are well known in Jerusalem. They might have been wealthy. We don't know. Even though Bethany means house of the poor, interestingly enough. Verse two, and it was, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. He wants you to know there's a lot of Marys in the Bible. It's that Mary, the one that, remember, brought in a costly bottle of perfume, breaks it, anoints the body of Jesus for burial, he says. Now, the weird thing is that story happens in chapter 12, but he's mentioning it here because it was a widespread story. There are two women that anoint Jesus's feet. It is two different incidences. It's not Mary both times. The other one is at the house of a Pharisee. This one is in their house in chapter 12. We'll get there probably in 14 weeks. But anyway, it's that Mary that anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary, when she's found in the gospels three times, she's always in the same posture. Anybody know? She's always at his feet. Always. It's beautiful. Wants to listen, wants to weep and cry out in this chapter, and wants to worship by anointing his feet with that perfume. So he wants you to know it's that Mary, that's the, whose brother Lazarus was sick, verse three. So the sisters sent to him, is literally how it reads, sent a message to him, sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Okay. That's the message. I want you to notice what isn't the message. What isn't the message is, so here's what you should do right? And isn't that how you pray and how I pray? We don't have to spend a lot of time informing the Lord. My dear sister, Bobby Joe is ill. She's not, but let's say she is. I'm not going to spend hours explaining to God. You see the x-rays, he knows, right? But we always pray. You heard me pray. We pray for their healing, for their being strengthened, for him to be glorified, the great physician. Mary and Martha see Lazarus take a bad turn for the worse doesn't look good. So they send a messenger. Where Jesus is and where they are in Bethany is about a full day's journey at least. And that's really moving for a person on foot to get all that way. Jesus must have told them, I'll be in this region. The guy's got to go find them. So it takes a day for the messenger to get there. Got the picture so far? He gets there and gives Jesus this message. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. He, Lazarus, whom you love, they're reminding you love him. By the way, Lazarus loves Jesus as well. He's sick. 
When there's that bond of love, you don't have to say, could you please do A, B, C, D, come as quickly as you can, which they expect, reply as quickly as you can, which they expect, heal Lazarus before it's too late, which they expect, right? But they, the bond of love is so strong between them, they're so close, they know if we tell him he's sick, Jesus will act, right? They're certain of it. He's healed other people. They know about that. But they may believe that Jesus has to come there physically and be there. Even though in the past he has healed from a distance. Go your way, your servant lives. Remember that? The centurion's servant. Go, go home, your servant's well now. Just spoken word, long distance, wireless, you might say, healing. Um, so they send that message to him. The messenger arrives with that message. He whom you love is sick. So there's no request. And you know, that's a good way to pray. In a way, it's this. There's this need, Lord. Your will be done. That's it. I trust so much that your will is good and perfect. I'm going to let you handle it. I'm not going to advise you. Can you imagine being God's advisor? Like he needs, oh, thank you for the advice, Joe. You're welcome. Yeah. I'm just going to leave it in your hands. But they do have clearly, I'm going to show you, expectations. Of course, he's going to come. As soon as, soon as he hears, he's going to say, pack it up, boys. We're going. They may even run to get there. But they don't. But notice the word love again. Um, it's there, isn't it? Lord, behold he whom you love is sick. Um, verse four. Well, when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not unto death or not meant for death, but it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified by it. Most scholars think that he's saying that out loud to the disciples, but he's also saying it as his reply to the text message he just got from the messenger. He's saying, here's my message to you guys. Their message, Lord, behold, the guy you love is sick. He says, this sickness is not meant for death or will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God that the son of God may be glorified by it. So he says, categorically, the, the sickness will not end in death, okay? He doesn't say Lazarus won't die. You say, now you're splitting hairs. No, listen, it won't end in death. And in a sense, the raising of Lazarus nullifies those four days in the smelly grave, right? It's as if it never happened. Um, so that's what he says. As soon as he heard this, that's what he says. Verse four, it's not meant for death. I want you to notice there's blasphemy in this verse. If Jesus isn't God, did you see it? It's meant for the glory of God. Nothing wrong with that. That's the purpose of everything. That's the purpose of your life, whether you realize it or not to bring God glory. So this sickness, a sickness, something terrible, is for, a, has a divine purpose, and the purpose is the glory of God. Good so far, we're with you, Jesus, and for my glory. That's what he's saying. He's the son of God, right? Now, if he's not really the son of God, and he's trying to share the glory on something, 
And don't we all do that sometime? You do something for the kingdom and you have to kind of do this and tell people, yeah, I painted the whole church. And if it was for God's glory, you wouldn't even tell people you painted the church. He's saying it's for his glory as well. Is that blasphemy? No, because he is God's son. He is fully God. And when he gets glory, God the Father gets glory. There's an ultimate purpose to the sickness. It won't be the end, won't be death. It'll be the glory of God and the glory of Christ, which is the best thing. That's what he's saying. That's his reply. Surely the messenger went, got it. Maybe even wrote it down and headed back immediately. Okay. I'll, I'll wait on the time frame thing, but already it's been at least a day for the guy to get there. He may have a meal and hang out for a second, or he may head right back, which is another day to get back. I'm going to show you that when he gets back, Lazarus is already dead. Lazarus probably died shortly after the guy left. I'll show you that as well. The messenger. Okay. So we got a little problem here. What was Jesus's reply? The sickness is not unto death, but it's for God's glory and for my glory. That's the messenger's going to get back and go, where's Mary and Martha? They're in the house weeping. Weeping? Why? Lazarus died. Hi, Mary. Hi, Martha. I found him. Did you give him the message? Yes. What did he say? He said, the sickness isn't unto death, but it's for God's glory and his glory. Well, he's already dead. This is an Olympic faith test for Mary and Martha and anybody else that believes, right? Was Jesus insensitive to not come? Why didn't he come with you? He just told me to tell you it's not unto death. It's for the glory of God. Well, was he packing up? No. What? Huh? Something's wrong here, right? So parenthetically, John wants you to know, here comes the word love again. Look at verse five. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved all three of them. You say, well, he doesn't, doesn't he love everybody? Yes. But the point here of mentioning it is he was certainly closer with some people than others, right? John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Arguably, the one that was closest to Jesus was John uh, the Apostle, who writes this book and Revelation and three other epistles. So John wants you to know he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Verse 6 in my Bible, in NIV, it's the word so. Some Bibles have therefore, right? Some of you are nodding. Don't miss that. Jesus loved these people. Therefore, or because of that love, verse 6, when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? You would think it says he loved them so much that he sprinted the whole day to get there as fast as he could. No, he loved them so much he stayed two extra days away. You say, boy, that doesn't sound right to me. But it is. We'll see that. Um, okay, so I've got notes here. Let me just look. Yeah, we already talked about God's glory. That's the purpose of everything. So They've got a major faith conflict with what he said and what they know happened. He's already dead. Um, so the divinely inspired purpose for this whole sickness sure doesn't look right. 
Now, so Jesus either made a mistake or he doesn't care that much. But John negates that by saying he loved him. So he stayed away longer. Sounds strange, doesn't it? So there's a real tension in verses five and six there, where the reader is reading this going, he loved him, but he stayed two extra days. He kind of, my dad used to call it, you dilly-dallied instead of like, let's go, right? So Jesus waits two days so that Lazarus will be, I don't mean to be insensitive, but so that he'll be good and dead fully dead, completely dead, dead, right? Four days dead for the Jews meant really dead, as if there's more dead than dead, right? Um, so because of his love, he lets him die because he'll receive greater glory. So will God. Everybody's faith, although floundering, will be grown in a way that you couldn't grow in a gymnasium if you worked out three hours a day for a whole year. They're going to see the glory of God even more. Love is giving us what we need, not what we want. What do they want? Come and heal Lazarus as soon as possible. What do they get? He's dilly-dallying, right? He lets him die. Pretty amazing. A real faith test. Um, often God doesn't give us immediate healing. In my opinion, for a number of reasons, he may be teaching us something, teaching us patience. It's a faith grower kind of thing. And let's face it, if every Christian, whenever there was a sickness, when they prayed, just imagine with me hypothetically, when Christians pray, usually within 30 minutes, the sickness is gone. How much faith would that require? You just watch your watch and go it's 28 more minutes and I'm going to be well again, or my sister's going to be well or whoever, my friend next door. God requires, he really loves when we wait on him. It's not easy. It's a trust thing, isn't it? So this is an object lesson already for you and me, because everybody in this room, I'll guarantee you will agree, nod your head yes, if you've ever prayed for something and God didn't answer. Everybody, mm -hmm. right. I saw you add really went, mm -hmm. me too, right? Sometimes he makes us wait. The point is that his delays are not denials, right? It's been said there's three answers to prayer. Yes, no, and the hard one, wait, right? Wait for me. So he may be testing you, expanding your faith, making you wait for something even better. What do they want Jesus to do? heal Lazarus of the sickness, okay? He does a much greater miracle through which he's glorified in a much greater way. Um, there's three times in the gospel of John where somebody really close to Jesus makes a request. I never saw this until this week. I read it in a commentary. I didn't get, it didn't come from here, believe me. The first time is Mary at the wedding in Cana. His mom, come on, dear right? And the Jewish mother says, Oy vey, they don't have any wine, you got to do something. Second one, his Jewish brothers, chapter seven and John say, you need to go up to the, I won't do the Jewish accent again, you need to go up to the feast in Jerusalem, show yourself in the big leagues. And this time, what do they have in common? Somebody really close asks for something. And at first he acts like, I'm not going to do it. 
right? He tells Mary, the wine, that's not my job. What, what does that have to do with me? My hour's not yet come, remember? But then he does it. He tells his brothers, no, you guys go. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going up to show myself that way. See you later. But then he goes. This time, he sends a message and doesn't go. But then he does come through. But there's a waiting in each case, not random, not being, you know, trying to be um, mysterious or anything. He does it because he's on God's timeline, which is always better. So don't forget, though, that he's God in a man's body. So he foresees everything. When he gets the message, he's already nodding, going, yeah, I already knew that. But he doesn't say that. But he knew right? He can already see that he's going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and he's going to walk out, right? And people are going to be amazed, and God's going to be glorified. He already knows. Let's keep reading, shall we? Um, so because he loves them, he stays two days longer, which is surprising. Verse 7, then after this, meaning after the two days, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Translation, or I should say Joe's paraphrase, let's go to the most dangerous place on the planet right now for me. Judea is where Jerusalem is. Lazarus lives less than two miles from Jerusalem where there's Pharisees itching to arrest me and kill me. And maybe all of you too, by the way, you, you apostles. Let's go to Judea. Let's go to the most dangerous place again where we just barely made it out with our lives, even though I know God was protecting me. That's what he says, okay? This sounds crazy to the apostles. Watch. The disciples, verse eight, said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, verse eight, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going, going there again? You can appreciate their right, but there's no faith that God's gonna protect him on their part, right? You're going to go there again. You're tempting fate, okay? Listen to his reply. It's a little cryptic, but we'll figure it out. Uh, they were just going to kill you, and now you're going to go there again. Verse 9, Jesus replied, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, verse 10, he stumbles because the light's not in him. And you say, what? What does that have to do with anything? Okay, what's going on here? This is um, Jesus's way of saying that the Jews and the Romans both considered, even though you know from different times of year, there's more sunlight at certain times I'm one of those people that I hate the winter where it gets dark at five o'clock. Do you hate, does anybody else hate that? It feels like your whole day was so short. I don't get up at the crack of dawn to begin with. I'm a musician. I have musician's hours. She's going, mm -hmm. right? You like to sleep in. Five o'clock comes, it's like dark already. I love like quarter of nine, nine o'clock starting to get dark. My band did a gig in Seattle. We were the opening act. We finished. We got outside a little after 10 p.m. and it was delight. We were like, wow, this is incredible. Okay. So, but generally 12 hours of daylight during which you can work 12 hours of nighttime, which you don't work. That's the 
theory. Okay, what does that have to do with this? He wants to travel during the day? No. He's saying, my time on earth that God has given me is finite. Okay. And while I am here, and it's daylight because the light, he's the sun, not S-U-N-S-O-N. While I'm here, I got to get things done. And I can work during this time. He's sort of in a veiled way showing them nothing can happen to me before the daylight hours are up, meaning before my ministry's done. I'm going to get arrested and killed in a bloody way, but it's not yet. I'm not even worried about it. He sort of has immunity from all that stuff. They could have shot him with a bazooka and a nuclear bomb, and it would have bounced off him until the appropriate time. So while those daylight hours are happening, while I'm on the earth, um, I can do my work and we must work during those hours. Um, let's go back and look at those verses again. Um, notice he says, if anyone works during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world, double meaning. For daylight, it means the sun, S-U-N, I said it earlier, but he said earlier, didn't he? And John, I am the light of the world. While I'm here, it's daylight, folks, he's saying. The nighttime's going to come, but if anyone walks, verse 10, during the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. You say, okay, I get that, but what's the night? As soon as he gets arrested, all bets are off, okay? That's the end of the daylight hours. It is in God's will. The disciples are scattered. They're in the upper room, powering in fear. He's under arrest, getting beaten up and whipped and spit upon and punched in the face and nailed to a cross. It's the dark time. You say, well, is that it? From now on, we're in darkness. The world is called in the Bible, listen, this present darkness. There was books in the 80s that were written by that title that were so amazing. Uh, Frank Peretti wrote two of them. Anyway, the point is, we're not living, we're living in a dark world, but we're living in the light of Jesus Christ. You have his Holy Spirit, so do I living inside of you. So we don't need to fear the darkness. We move out in boldness and in faith because we have his light again. But there's that window of time there and the great tribulation, some have said, where it's going to get pretty dark again. Not that we won't be still having his light, but dark. Uh, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble. Because in other words, I'm not even going to stump, uh, stub my toe, he's saying. I'll be safe. Because um, they're worried about his safety, remember, in context. Um, and then he says, if you anyone walks during the night, that's when you stumble without God's light. The light's not in him. Verse 11, this he said, and after this, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going that I may awaken him from sleep. Okay. You may know that the Old Testament uses the metaphor of sleep for death. It says about the fathers of the faith a long time ago that so-and-so lived X amount of years and he slept with, uh, he went to sleep with the fathers that had gone before him. It's a metaphor for death. If you ask me, it's a good metaphor. If you've ever seen a dead body uh, in a casket, they look like they're asleep, right? They dress them up in a nice suit and their eyes are closed and they just look like they're asleep. But the truth is, physically speaking, it ain't sleep, is it? 
Sleep is temporary. Sleep is good, right? Sleep is something that you can easily bring somebody out of. You know, hey, wake up, Joe. What? I don't wake up that quickly, but if you shake me, I'm probably not in a good mood if I was asleep. But anyway, that's why the metaphor. So that's all he's saying is in a gentle way, Lazarus has died, boys. I want you to know. Um, our friend, notice it's our friend. It's not just that Jesus loves them. All the disciples know and love Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Our friend, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going. This is my reason for going. You're, you're wondering if I'm going to be safe. I'm not worried about that. I just covered that. I'm going to wake him up. He means raise him from the dead, right? So it's really cute that the disciples, a little thick, a little slow, they always take stuff literally, right? Not in the sense in which it's intended. So watch their reply. The so he says, I'm going, he's fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. Verse 12, the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll come out of it. He'll wake up. That's good. When you're sick, you get a lot of rest. He'll be fine. Let's stay here where it's safe. It's good that he's getting rest, right? Taking it too, in a, too much of a wooden literal sense. Now, verse 13, John parenthetically throws in, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking about literal sleep or actual sleep. Got the picture? People have, people have often said to unbelievers, you people take the Bible literally? And I say, yes, in the literal sense in which it was intended. When Jesus says in chapter 10 that he's the door, I don't think he has hinges on one side and a doorknob right over here. It's not lit. It's not made out of wood. There's obviously some meaning he's trying to put forth. Literally, a door is a way into something, right? Or out of something. He is the way in to eternal life, to God the Father, to heaven. That's what he means. So yes, I take it literally, but no, he's not made of wood. In the same way, he'd spoken of his death. They thought he was speaking about actual sleep. So you got to love Jesus. Sometimes when we're thick and a little slow, he has to spell it out for us. Listen up, Joe. Here's what I mean. Verse 14. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus died. Okay. Very simple. Verse 15. Kind of a strange verse. And I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Okay. Now he spells it out. Lazarus is already dead. Remember, timeline, one day for the messenger to go. He was alive when the messenger left, because if he'd already died, Mary and Martha would have said, don't bother, he's dead now. He's alive. They say, hurry, find Jesus, tell him. Day one, he makes the journey and he tells him. But Lazarus must die almost immediately after the messenger leaves. Verse two, uh, I'm sorry, day two, the messenger comes back. Okay. But day two is also day one of the two days Jesus lingers where he is. You with me? Day one, you got it now? She was shaking her head. Incorrect. <laughs> Feel free to do so because I often am. 
Day one, the, the messenger goes. Day two, the messenger returns. Day three, the messenger's been there a day. Two days, Jesus hangs out. It's going to take Jesus and his boys a day at least to get there. Now we got the four days. When he gets there, he finds out Lazarus has been dead four days. That's why most scholars think the messenger left and he got way sicker and died. To the point, I believe that Mary and Martha, if they could have, would have called the cell phone of the messenger and said, you know what, turn around, he died. But they didn't have good service, you know, not many antennas in those days. Um, so they don't want him, the disciples don't want him to go. He explains, I got to go. I'm going to wake him up from actual death, not sleep. Verse 15, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there so that you may believe. What's the point? Let's assume Jesus sprints there and gets there when he's in critical condition. Okay. And he dies as Jesus arrives. The disciples are going to think, uh-oh, maybe he, Jesus doesn't have the power we think he had. He's healed other people. What's going on here? He's healed people at a distance. Doesn't he love them? Their faith could really be crushed by seeing Mary and Martha wailing with tears, right? And the other family and friends seeing Lazarus die. And Jesus just standing there. He's saying, for your sakes, because I want you to believe, boys, the 12 of you, 11 will, not, not Judas. I'm glad I wasn't there because it's going to be a heavy scene. I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad you're with me here. We're going to go over there and it's going to be heavy, but I'm glad you were with me because the temptation to not believe in the face of circumstances like that is very hard. Much like Peter, do you remember? And the apostles are on the uh, Sea of Galilee in a storm. Do you remember that? And here comes Jesus walking on the water. And in the synoptics, Jesus um, says, fear not, it is I. Remember that? And Peter says, Lord, from the boat, if it's you, let me walk to you. Remember that? Pretty bold, pretty crazy, but pretty bold, right? And Jesus says, come on. And Peter does it. He walks on water, keeping his eyes on Christ. But the minute he looks at the storm and listens to the waves and feels the salt water or the fresh water hitting him in the face, what happens? He sinks. He's afraid the disciples are going to sink if they see the mourning and the crying and the wailing and a dead body there and Jesus looking like he's powerless against death, but he's not. So that's why he says in verse 15, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. He could have handled it. He knows what he's going to do so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Now, here's the interesting verse, and this is where Thomas is the spokesman. No, Peter. Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus, Thomas uh, in both Aramaic and in Hebrew means Toma or Tom uh, in both languages means twin. Okay. Didymus is twin in Greek. Most Jews had a, a Hebrew name and a um, Greek name. So Thomas, who is called Didymus, he's a twin. Okay. Where's his twin? We don't know. Okay, church tradition, which who knows if it's true, was that Thomas is called the twin because he looked a lot like Jesus. 
Is there any proof of that? No. Is it true? I don't know. He's a twin. Fraternal or identical. I don't know. He's a twin, right? But if he does look like Jesus, he'd be in the most danger, looking like the wanted man. You with me? Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, he speaks as the leader to the other disciples. He's not speaking to Jesus. Let us also go that we may die with him. Die with who? Jesus. He thinks this is a lame brain plan. You're going to the most dangerous place. You're going to get yourself killed. So he says, let's let's go with him. We can't let him go alone. We love him too much. Let's go with him so that we may die with him. Okay, now there's two schools of thought on the tone of voice that this was said in, okay? Some scholars think, wow, what faith Thomas has. Let's go. Jesus says we should go. We're going to go too, and I'm willing to die with him. Aren't we all willing to die? And I'm sure some of them are going, not me, right? Let's go that we may die with him. It's just pure faith. Others think Thomas is kind of one of those people that when there's one little cloud in the sky, he's the kind of guy that says, hmm, it's cloudy today. Kind of a pessimist, okay? Thomas has a reputation for being doubting Thomas. Do you remember why? Later on in this gospel, Jesus appears to the disciples. Thomas is off on an errand somewhere, okay? He comes back. They go, we saw him. He's alive. And Thomas says, do you remember? I don't believe it. Unless you can, I can see and put my fingers in the nail prints and my hand in his side. I'm a show me kind of guy. I'm an evidence kind of guy. I think you're all out to lunch. Until I can see it, I won't believe. I'm doubting Thomas. Listen, I think he's honest, Thomas, right? It's a little hard to believe. Been dead three days. These guys are up in the upper, in the upper room and they say they saw him and you weren't there. And, but he does see him. Do you remember? And Jesus says, knock yourself out, man. Put your finger, put your whole hand in over here if you want. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. That's toward the end of the gospel. We'll get there in 2028. But anyway, let's keep rolling. Actually, you know what? It's time for a two-minute break. Let's do that. I'm going to turn my screen off, but don't go away on Zoom. And those of you that are here, just stretch for two minutes, and we'll be right back. Don't go away. All right, we're back, and thank you for waiting. Um, somebody mentioned um, uh, during the break, uh, Kay did, about soul sleep. How many have ever heard that? Um, Seventh-day Adventists, and there's a few others that believe in it. The doctrine of soul sleep is that, uh, and it's not biblical, just wanted to tell you, um, and I'll tell you why in a second. The doctrine is Seventh-day Adventists most believe in it. That is that when a believer dies, let's say I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, they would say, well, he's deceased, his body is dead. It's in the, it's in the casket. It's going to go into the ground or the tomb or whatever. And his soul and spirit, the immaterial part of him, is in suspended animation. It is asleep. 
It doesn't know anything. It can't say anything. It doesn't see anything. It's not with God, not in heaven. It's just suspended animation awaiting in the future when Jesus returns, when he will raise the believers from the dead. And then they wake up. Okay. Is that biblical? I already told you. No. Uh, Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians, about death, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That fast. Okay. Uh, the other place, everything's always two or three scriptures to confirm it. The other place where he talks about this is where he says um, that he knows that his end is near. He's going to die soon. And he says, I'm really torn. I really want to stay here and help you people learn and grow. He's writing um, a letter to one of the churches. But he says, and yet I also, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. You mean like a couple thousand years from now? No, I mean, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Okay. For the believer, the body does die. But the immaterial part of you, the software part of you, the soul and spirit part of you, your personality and your spirit, instantly go to be with Christ in heaven, God in heaven, instantly. Read Luke 16, sometime the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, in which you get a glimpse into a believer and an unbeliever, and you get to watch what happens after they die. And neither one of them is asleep in their spirit or soul. Okay, enough about that. Okay, you get an A for the day. Thank you very much. Um, okay, yeah, we already talked about that. So um, it's odd that there's a death and Jesus says the word glad. Did you notice that? I'm glad that you guys weren't there. Okay, so back to verse 16. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay. Thomas takes the lead. Let's go also that we may die with him. Now, what that may be is a little of both. I think it's faith. Okay. I think he loves Jesus enough that we can't let him go alone. Let's go with him. But he's pessimistic as well that we may die with him. Now, there's a little symbolism here as well, because if I'm, if, if Jeff is witnessing to me about Christ and I'm not a Christian, in a sense, Jeff is saying to me, let's go with him. Come with me, Joe. Let's follow Jesus so that we may die with him. Because part of being a Christian is dying to your old, selfish, sinful, stupid self, right? That's part of it. We die, and that's what baptism is. Watch me go into the water. That's my old me dying, and I'm rising up to newness of life. The old me is going to be dead. Okay, so um, one commentator called it um, uh, another way of saying, take up your cross and follow Jesus. It's sort of loyal devotion, um, but he he's very realistic that Jesus might die, and I'm willing to go anyway, and we all should be willing to go with him. Pretty amazing that he says this. Um, again, that's one of the reasons they think Peter wasn't around for this part of uh, this story, the whole Lazarus thing. Um, Bob Deffenbaugh called it words of reluctant resignation or loyal despair. He's pessimistic, but 
He's affectionate and loyal to Jesus. He can't let him go alone. Verse 17. So they make the journey. Between 16 and 17, there's at least a one-day journey they're walking to get there. Jesus is never, if you notice, in a hurry. Did you ever notice that? Got the timing thing down. So when Jesus came, that means to Bethany, he found that he, that's Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. There's the four days. Now, keep in mind, the, the Egyptians used to embalm the dead. The Hebrews did not. They would sprinkle spices on it, on the, on the corpse, wrap it in some linen, put a face wrapping on it, and they would bury the dead usually the same day, sometimes the same owl. The guy died at 2.30. He's in the grave at 3.30 or 4. They didn't waste any time with the dead. Um, so here they are. They're arriving there. The disciples are looking be behind them because they're worried about the danger. He finds that Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. Remember what I said at the beginning of this Bible study? They thought three days, there's hope. The spirit lingers, and the fourth day, it's like dead, dead. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, verse 18, about 15 stadia away, which is about a mile and three quarters away. Um, that's to show you that, oh, we're really close to where Jesus was in danger. He's taking a risk being here, but he's not. He knows he's in God's timeline. And verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. Okay. That should make you a little nervous because the Jews in the Gospel of John is usually the Jewish leaders. So there's probably some Pharisees and Sadducees there, some scribes there, some friends from Jerusalem. There's a crowd there. These people are popular, and their brother has died very suddenly, very ill, and passed away. It wasn't uncommon for a funeral or a memorial, let's call it, to last seven days, okay? You wouldn't show up for a few hours. They'd say nice things and see you later, or maybe you go to the gravesite and watch that and you go home. Seven days. At least three days, you would regularly visit the grave again and again and again. There'd be all kinds of things said, stories told, prayers given. They even hired professional mourners who would play the flute and would wail and cry and oh, even though they didn't even know the person. It's kind of ridiculous, right? Um, so there's a huge crowd there, okay? Had Jesus healed him from where he was, said the word, Lazarus be healed, he's healed, this whole crowd would never have witnessed this miracle. They're there. It's day four. It's not day seven when they're going, see you later, Mary and Martha. We're so sorry. They're all there, or most of them anyway. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, 15 said anyway. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them about their the loss of their brother. Because now there's obviously no hope because he's gone. Verse 20. So then Martha, when she, had, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. 
If you know these two sisters from other stories, you know that Martha is the one always busy in the kitchen and fretting and freaking out about we don't have enough pasta or we don't have enough this or go get some mustard next door of Poupon, see if they have any great Poupon. She's very concerned about serving and getting everything perfect and the table isn't quite right. And Mary is just, I want to be at Jesus's feet listening, right? There's another story where Martha comes to Jesus and complains. Do you remember? Hey, tell my sister to help me. I'm working in the kitchen. Here she is listening to you teach. And he tells her, Martha, you're always so busy and you're so worried about these things. She's chosen the better thing. Sit down and listen. Kind of what he says, Joe's paraphrase. There's Martha, instantly gets up. She's proactive. She's busy. Jesus is coming. He's about a mile away, somebody says. She runs out of the house. Mary might be a little more emotional. Mary might be a little more disappointed. Wouldn't you be? He's dead. We told you. We sent word. The messenger said he, imagine if the messenger said, I couldn't find him. Oh, no, I found him. I, are you sure? Yes. What did he say again? This sickness is an unto death. It's for the glory of God and it's my glory. What? Mary might be in the house like this, like, I'm not, he can come to me. I'm not going to him. Right? A little faith test, Olympic faith test. Martha goes out to him. Mary stays in the house. So here's Martha. Martha then said to Jesus, I'm sure they hugged. I'm sure they, you know, spoke. But the first thing out of her mouth is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is she right? Probably. He could have easily healed her. What she's expressing is, I know the kind of power you have. If you had come here, all of this couldn't could have been averted, could have been avoided, right? In a way, it's a little bit of a guilt trip. Thanks for showing up better late than never. Had you shown up on time, we wouldn't be having a funeral right now. There's a little bit of disappointment, but you're going to see there's great faith. How much faith might surprise you, not as much as you think. Watch. So the first thing she says is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, verse 22, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now that sounds, when you first look at it, like she's saying, I'm so bummed he's dead. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. However, I still know, I still know that God hears you. And even right now, four days in the grave, starting to stink, stiff as a board, if you ask and ask God to raise him, he'll raise him up. That is not where she's at. She doesn't believe that. I'll show you two reasons why. Um, but she does want him to know, look, Mary's not real happy, Lord. No offense. Okay. I'm here. I want you to know, I still know who you are and what you are. And I still know that God hears you no matter what you ask. She is not asking for him to raise the dead. It isn't even in her realm of possibility. It's not even a 1%. Should I ask him? It's not even on her mind. It's too late. It's day four. You with me? Um, 
If you'd been there, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So Jesus is going to test how, how wide and how deep is your faith, Mary? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise from the dead. Is he right? Yeah. In probably this hour sometime, right? Any moment, your brother, but he just says it sort of cryptically, your brother will rise from the dead. He's testing her faith, right? To see if she understands it could happen now. That's how much power I have. Or does she think in terms of the end of the world, second coming of Christ, people coming out of graves? You're going to see it's the second one, not, not today. She's not thinking today. Your brother will rise from the dead. Martha said to him, verse 24, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. When's that? End of the world. Second coming of Christ. He comes to set up the kingdom uh, and starts to reign in the millennium. A long ways off from then right? It's already been almost 2000 years, hasn't happened yet, but it will. That's And that moment, bodies will rise all around this globe, billions of bodies all at once. It, if you're awake and alive, it will be mind-blowing. But if you're dead, it'll be mind-blowing, right? Either way, wow. I want to be at the cemetery somewhere, right? Don't you? And certain graves like, wow, look at that. My parents are buried together. And I said to my brother, we went and visited the grave like maybe three years ago after my dad had been gone like three years. And I said, Jim, first, uh, first Thessalonians says, if we happen to be standing here, mom and dad are in there and Jesus comes back, we would see them rise out of those graves. And he kind of, he believes, but it was, was kind of like a little, um, anyway, <laughs> uh, let's keep rolling. So he tells her he's going to rise from the dead. I know he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. She doesn't say, are you going to do it now? I got time right now. If you want to do it, she's just thinking in the future. She knows he believed in you. She's got great doctrine. I'm going to show you. She's miles ahead of Peter, James, and John and Thomas miles ahead of them, let alone the Pharisees. She gets it. She just doesn't know he's going to raise him now. Don't forget, she's the one later on, we'll do it next week. She's the one that's going to protest when he says, roll the stone away. You remember that? She's the one that says, he's going to stink, Lord. Don't do it. Remember, she protests. And then he has to say, didn't I tell you, you'd see the glory of God? She doesn't think he's going to raise the, bo the body, but she still has faith that God hears him. Um, Jesus said, to her, so she says, I know he'll rise at the end in the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. Okay, so verse 25, I want you to keep your finger here before we discuss that. I want you to go to Daniel, okay? Old Testament, we studied Daniel before we studied this book. So go to the Old Testament. 
about eight or 10 or 12 books back from, from uh, Matthew. If you find Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah, you got to go forward to Daniel. I want you to go to Daniel 12 with me. If you can't find it, that's fine, but you're not going to get an A in the class for today like K is. Daniel 12, okay? The Jews had a very limited understanding about the resurrection, the afterlife, okay? But there were some verses that talk about an afterlife. Daniel 12 is one of them. This, this is what he, she's talking about. I know he'll rise on the last day. Look at Daniel 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress. That's the great tribulation, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, all believers, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Here it comes. And notice the word sleep, verse 2 multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth. What does that mean? It means they've, they're deceased. They're in graves. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, believers, others to shame and everlasting contempt, unbelievers. You got the picture? He's talking about that. She's talking about the same. She's talking about Daniel 12 too. And he says to her, I am Daniel 12 too. That's me that does that. I, I'm not saying I can resurrect. He's saying I am. This is the seventh, uh, sorry, sixth I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life that follows the resurrection, if you will. Um, okay, wait, I've got a bunch of notes here. I want to talk about this for a second. Um, so he's not saying I can resurrect him or I may. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice the second half of the phrase. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies, which is your brother's case, Mary, Martha, sorry. Lazarus died and he will live. This is an object lesson that is for, it's, it's a, coming attraction or preview of his own resurrection, which is going to happen in about three and a half months. Okay. He's going to be in the grave. They're going to mourn. Oh, and then he's going to come out of the grave. It's going to happen to all of you. And to me, hard to believe, but true. If we're dead at the time Christ returns, if we're alive at the time he returns, he'll in the twinkling of an eye, first Corinthians 15, change us into the glorified body that they're going to get. We get it without going out in and out of a grave. Um, okay, uh, let's see. Yeah, verse 25. Um, that's why I can't find it because it's on the next page. Listen to Job 19. You don't need to turn there. Job, who goes through, you know, a time of unbelievable testing, suffering, loss, right? You ever read the book of Job? It's like, wow. Job believed in an afterlife. Listen, the worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, I will see God. That's confidence in the resurrection. Amen. Um, he know, she knows that Lazarus is going to rise with all the righteous ones at the end, but she is not thinking today. Um, okay. Yeah, last day, we already talked about that. Okay, so... 
Um, this is a double claim Jesus makes. I am the resurrection. If anybody gets resurrected, it's through me. If anybody comes to the Father, John 14, 6, he comes through me. In the same way, somebody gets raised from the dead, it's through me. Parenthetically, and we'll talk more about this next week, technically, Lazarus is not resurrected from the dead. He's resuscitated. Well, you're splitting hairs. No, listen, if you knew Lazarus, you'd be blown away that he was dead and he's alive again. And guess what? 15 years later, he died again, right? 28 years. I don't know when he died again. So it's not a resurrection, a Christian resurrection. You don't rise and die and rise. That's reincarnation. You rise for good, eternal life. Okay. You got the picture in a glorified body. He does not come back in a glorified body. He comes back in a fleshly body that can get injured and get sick and die. And he does. He dies twice, a rare exception. Amen. Um, when the, let's see, where do I have that in my notes? Uh, I'll save it for later. Um, so he's saying, I don't want you to think about um, resurrection. I want you to think about the person because he says, I am the resurrection. Buddha doesn't resurrect anybody. Muhammad doesn't resurrect anybody. Confucius, Jim Jones, Joseph Smith, they're all in graves somewhere. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Um, there's life in him, John 5 says. Uh, we already talked about that. Um, oh, the early church, when they spoke the creeds of Christianity, which codifies what Christians believe, I be, you know, remember the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, that kind of thing. When they got to the line that says, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh, there's um, people have written that the early church would, re would recite, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh, and then they would point to their own bodies and say, etiem hujus carnis, which means even this very flesh, to make it personal. Jesus, by the way, is about to make it really, really personal for Mary, uh, sorry, for Martha, and for you. Let's keep reading. Are you still awake? Say amen. Okay. All right. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I am the resurrection and the life, meaning, by the way, that's eternal life, that's spiritual life, that is God's life. But he also gave everyone physical life because he created everything that is. The one who believes in me. So, what's the dividing line? The good works and the faith. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone, verse 26, this is the other side of the coin, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's you. You say, no, 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 I'm mortal. I've got aches and pains. I know I have a limited amount of time left. And you're right. But what he's saying is this, you will not experience death the way an unbeliever will. Okay. Unbelievers, it'll be a dark, oh no, this is it. For you, it's God going, it's time. Yes. It's a glorious resurrection. It's the most beautiful day of your life, believe it or not. 
I'm not going to feel like it because you're going to barely be able to breathe maybe, or who knows in a car wreck or you're in a hospital bed, or you got shot by somebody in downtown Fresno, whatever it is, it'll be absolutely glorious. You will pass from this very temporal sin-filled dark world into a world we can't even imagine. Now, listen, I don't want to paint it too beautifully because I don't want you to wish for that day. The point is you've got a limited amount of time left, don't you? We need to use the time wisely, right? You know why? Because in Jesus's analogy earlier, guess what it is? It's the daylight. We're supposed to work in this amount of time. And like Jesus, you won't die 20 minutes before you're supposed to. I'm not saying it won't be tomorrow afternoon. It might be. I hope it isn't. But if it is, that's the time Jesus gave you. And we don't know, so we have to use the time as wisely as we can. So he says, the one who, verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. If you watch me die, God forbid, it's going to look horrific. Believe me. Don't cry for me. It's going to be unbelievable. Uh, that's going to be the greatest day of your life and mine. It's going to be a glorious graduation. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, we already talked about that. Uh, yeah, and we talked about that. Verse 27, well, 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Here it comes. You ready? Do you believe this? That's what this book is asking you. I know it's him asking Martha. I'm asking you. He, he is asking for her to tell the truth. And he would know if she's lying. Do you believe this? That death is not the end. That I am the resurrection and the life. And people that believe in me will never die. Okay. Verse 27. So that's the question. That's the ultimate question. Do you believe this? Right? Not, do you live a pretty good life? Do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? Because that's how you get to heaven. Eh, wrong. Do you believe this? Notice Christianity is not doctrine. It is, but it's a person. He doesn't say, Book 27, chapters 9 through 11, is the resurrection. He says, I am. The same guy that's the light of the world, the same guy that's the bread of life, the same guy that's the great, the good shepherd, is also the resurrection and the life. She said to him, verse 27, yes, Lord. Look at her theology. She is like a PhD in theology. Remember, she already knows about the resurrection from the dead um, back in verse 24. Remember? He'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. There's a judgment. I already know about that. Believers make it. She's already there. Yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Christ. That means you are the Messiah, the Son of God, deity, and he who comes into the world, or he who is to come into the world. She understands a lot. Starting with the first thing she said, I know it's, it's a bummer you weren't here. My brother wouldn't have died, but I know God still hears you, right? Your relationship with God is that tight. 
you whisper, you think, and he hears you. I get that. You two are one. I know that you're the Messiah. I know that you're the son of God. I know the one, you're the one that was promised to come into the world. You're here now. Pretty amazing theology. She gets it more than most. She focuses on his person. This is similar to Peter in Matthew 16, 16. Do you remember that? Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then in Greek, he says it this way, emphatic word you. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I say you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that? This is the same thing. This is not an apostle. This is a woman who weren't, rabbis weren't allowed to summon, let alone teach women theology. Christianity greatly elevates women. Um, she gets an A+. Plus. Um, Jesus doesn't respond because she says everything right. He doesn't have to correct anything, does he? I'm just reading notes here. Um, by the way, the, in, in Greek, what she says, I, yes, I have come to believe. The I is emphatic. I, I, me, this is what I believe. Pretty amazing. A great model here I want you to see. She states her belief plainly. Um, does she have full theology? No, no, no. She doesn't know about the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the suffering for sins, but with the light she's been given, she sure gets an A. But watch what believers are supposed to do. They boldly state what they believe. And then what? Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mar Mary aside. The teacher is here. The rabbi's here, she said, and is asking for you. What are believers supposed to do? Keep it to yourself. Wrong. Go tell somebody. Invite somebody. Jesus is calling you. She tells her sister, which is true, he's asking for you, right? If you've been witnessing to somebody and you see that they kind of are coming to believe, God is calling you, you say, to whoever. It's beautiful. So she goes and calls her sister aside. I think one of the translations has, she speaks to Mary secretly. Anybody have that? Yes, a couple, three people. Okay, what's that? There's a crowd of people around Mary, right? She's weeping. She's wailing. People are playing the flutes. They're all crying and screaming and yelling and quietly, because if she says it out loud, they're all going to go. She wants Mary to have a few private minutes at least with the Savior of the world. So she whispers in her ear, he's here and he's calling for you. Okay. To her credit, verse 29, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Beautiful. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. He's outside of town, verse 30. And darn it, we're running out of time, and it's just about to get good. Uh, I told you we wouldn't get there this week. When the Jews, verse 31, who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. By the way, probably she's already been there 11 times, right? It's day four, right? In the morning, she went there in the afternoon. It's another day. Oh, she's getting up. Let's go. She's probably going to the tomb, the poor thing. Let's go with her. She is going to the tomb, but not for the reason they think, right? Um, 
it's a pregnant place to stop, but we have to stop here. Those of you that brought your sleeping bags, we can continue. Oh, nobody did. Darn. All right. We're going to stop here. We'll pick it up next week because you never know what will happen. Somebody who's dead might rise from the dead. Next week, I'm going to show you who Lazarus really is. I'm not saying he's not a real historic person, but I'm going to show you that you are Lazarus. And this already happened to you. I'll show you that next week. Let's close with prayer and then we'll get out of here. Don't miss next week. Same time, same channel. Thank you, Father, for this time we could spend in your word. It's so glorious. There's so many levels of meaning here, Father. I pray we'll see them all next week as it all comes together. Thank you uh, that when our prayers are delayed, it doesn't mean we're being denied it means your timing and your will is more perfect than ours. Help us to just bring the need to you without telling you what to do or even requesting things, although we can. Help us to trust absolutely that your delays are for our good and for your and Christ's glory. Help us to see that, God. And may we look for your glory in everything in this world, the beauty of creation and uh the, the beauty of salvation and by our obedience, thank you for it and live it out. Thank you that death has no sting for a Christian. It's a glorious graduation. Thank you for the compassion of Jesus we see here. We're really going to see it next week, God. Help us to use, lastly, the time you've given us wisely. Who knows how many days, hours, months, years we have, God. Help us to use it wisely while it's day, and then help us to join you in glory and await the final coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. What a beautiful thing. We give you thanks, God, and praise in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Hope to see you next week. Thank you for being here. Those of you that are here in person, make sure you say hello to someone, look around, that you don't know. That's the most important thing. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week. Thanks again.